0: Hi everybody and welcome to Maintenance Phase, the podcast that will gladly trade you two regular milk tickets for one chocolate milk ticket.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: <laughs> I knew we were talking about school lunches and I that was my one very vivid memory.
1: <laughs> the podcast that serves you turkey tetrazzini. <laughs>
0: I'm Aubrey Gordon. I am Michael Hobbs. If you'd like to support the show, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash maintenance phase. We're now releasing bonus episodes so you can enjoy some bonus content. Support the show if you want to and don't if you don't.
1: Keep listening and never give us a dime. It's chill.
0: That's right. And today we are talking about school lunches, I think.
1: Aubrey, I'm so excited. Oh, I can't wait. This is our first, I think, straightforward clickbait episode. (laughs) I am going to title this episode... School lunches, pee hacking, and the original Pizzagate.
0: The original Pizzagate?
1: That's like how we're drawing people in. But the actual story that we're going to talk about today is basically the rise and fall of a single food and nutrition researcher who was one of the most prominent people in this field for more than a decade. His name is Brian Wansink. And I think it's a really good story. It's, like, by far our most methodology queenie episode. (laughs) But also, if we called it Brian Wansink, nobody would listen to it. So we've gotten you here with a catchy title, and now we're going to pump statistics into you.
0: (gasps) I can't wait. Also, like, my knowledge of this topic runs, like, an eighth of an inch deep. Excellent. The only reason the name rings a bell is a listener sent in an email being like, I think you should do an episode about this guy. And I told you about it when you were like,
1: I don't know what I'm going to do for my next episode. And then my eyes got as big as the dinner plates in the research we're about to cover.
0: Well, the the great and hilarious thing is that I told you about it. I was like, apparently there's this whole like nutrition research scandal. And you were like, oh, Brian Wansing, Yeah. (laughs) Peak Michael Hobbs response.
1: So I have actually, I've been following this for a while because, full disclosure, I was like one of the people who totally fell for this guy. (gasps) I'm not going to pretend to be above any of the biases that we're going to talk about, or any of really, I think, the structural problems in media and in academic research that this episode is like an entry point into. You know, he spent more than a decade being like one of the most prominent sort of brand name researchers in this field. He wrote two best selling books. He was on the sort of the TED talk circuit. When this entire downfall happened, the New York Times writes an article about it, this kind of perfunctory article. And at the end, they note that he had been quoted in 60 New York Times articles over the course of almost 20 years. Good lord! So, one of the frustrating things about this, honestly, is that for our main protagonist, Brian Wansink, there's actually very little information available about his early life and sort of how he got into the field of food research. What we do know about Brian is that he starts as a marketing professor, Uh which is that we're already in the foreshadowing section.
0: I was going to say, this does not bode well.
1: This is an excerpt from his book Mindless Eating, which comes out in 2007. I'm never sure what to say when someone asks how I first became interested in food, psychology, and marketing. I usually say I really liked Vance Packard's 1957 book The Hidden Persuaders because he tried to show how advertising unconsciously affects us. I think this also happens when we eat, except the hidden persuaders are the way we set up our tables, our kitchens, and our routines.
0: I'm going to go out on a limb and also assume that Brian Wonsink is not a fat dude.
1: Oh, absolutely not. He's a skinny white guy. He's blonde. He looks around like 6'1", something like that. I'm um, looking up a picture of him just to, yeah,
0: there you go. He's got kind of the Ed Begley Jr. kind of look about him.
1: Yeah. Like Suburban Dad. Like, do you guys want some nachos? Like calling in from the kitchen. Yes.
0: Guy who owns a recumbent bike. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Is the vibe with this guy. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the only thing that I think that we can sort of pull out of these origin stories is really that he's fascinated by the idea that people, especially consumers, make choices without really knowing why they're doing it. Right. So after he gets his PhD from Stanford, he's basically a kind of normal marketing professor at various business schools. He works at Dartmouth. He goes to the Wharton Graduate School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And eventually he sort of lands at the University of Cornell in 2005. Mm. Because there's kind of no biographical details in his books, I kind of had to piece together his career basically from his like Google Scholar citations. So I just like organized all of his research in chronological order and just started looking at the kinds of studies that he was publishing. Over the course of his career, he publishes over 480 academic studies. Man, oh man. So what? where does that productivity come from? I mean, we'll, we'll get there. Fuck. Okay, shit. Huge. I can't tell you without a huge spoiler. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For the first... 10, 15 years of his career, the research that he's producing is like very straightforward marketing research. So one thing that he's really obsessed with is this idea of unit size that, you know, if people buy a large bag of chips, they'll eat the whole bag. And if they buy a small bag of chips, they'll eat the whole bag. Uh -uh. But he's doing all of this research to give advice to companies on, like, how big their unit sizes should be. Like, it's it's very clear that what he's doing is, like, he's helping companies sell more products. Like, that's the way that all of his work is framed throughout the 1990s.
0: Yeah, this is the Halo Top approach, right? Yes. Don't stop till you hit the bottom. Like, but, 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 but like, let's just assume that you're going to eat the whole package of whatever you buy.
1: Exactly. So his early work shows that, like, what you name food is actually really important for whether or not people buy it. And it even affects their taste. So people will actually rate, like, wine that is from California or that they think is from California as more tasty than wine that they think is from North Dakota.
0: People rated Freedom Fries as tasting superior (laughs) to French fries. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those places where it's, like, it's very tempting to believe that we're all much more sophisticated than we are and our decision-making is really different than it is. But we're all kind of on autopilot and we're all... Way more predictable than we would like to think that we are.
1: Completely, we all are profoundly affected by marketing, and we all think that we're not. Yeah, like I bought a Casper mattress, man. Oh, did you? Oh yeah. Not. It's not because I like did a literature deep dive. It's like no, no. They mentioned it on like five different podcasts. Truly,
0: two days ago, I bought a Helix mattress for exactly the same
1: reason. (laughs) A fun fact, Aubrey, when your Helix mattress comes, you're more likely to eat more of it if it comes in a large package than a small package. (laughs) So, I mean, a lot of his early work is sort of around these same kinds of ideas. It's basically trying to figure out what makes people purchase products. He finds that you eat more fat if you put olive oil on your bread than butter, but you also eat less bread. His studies get a little bit of play in the media, but like he's not really like a name in nutrition research. Mm. That all changes in 2005. He publishes two studies that are, like, explosive in the press. Like, you could not avoid these stories at this time. The first, I'm sure you've heard of this one. Do you know the bottomless bowl study? I don't know the bottomless.
0: Is this, like, an all-you-can-eat kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so they did this thing. He has this, like, lab now that has, like, hidden cameras and two-way mirrors. And it's all these ways of, like, surveilling the way that people eat and why they eat differently. And the study is exactly what it sounds like. They build a bowl that has, like, a little tube underneath it where it's actually feeding more soup into the bowl as you're eating it. And so he finds that people eat, I think it's 53% more of this bowl that is refilling itself. It's this idea that like you just eat until the bowl is empty. Like none of us are eating based on any satiety cues. We're just like, uh there's more left in the bowl, so I better keep eating. This
0: lab of his was mm-hmm. just the olive garden? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there actually is like a test restaurant. I don't know why they don't call it the testaurant at this university <laughs> where like people like diners can come and they know that they're participating in studies. It's like marketing studies. And it'll be like the menu will be like, you know, have French names one night and then English names the other night. And they'll test like, does this affect your purchasing decisions? So like he's also doing these lab studies in this test constantly.
0: That's fascinating. And also like, I feel as you're just talking about the experimental designs, I feel myself going like, Ooh. oh, yeah, right. Like it feels like an interesting like dinner party conversation sort of topic. So I'm like, there's a lot of uh, curb appeal to these studies.
1: I mean, this is like catnip for journalists. Sure. The other big study that comes out in 2005 is the... Do you know this one? The popcorn study? I don't know
0: the popcorn study, at least not by name.
1: This is one where people are going to a movie... And sort of at the door, he tells them, like, you've been entered into a drawing something something. We're giving everybody free popcorn tonight. Mm. And so they do this in, like, a bunch of different conditions, right? So in one night, they give everybody a medium-sized bucket of popcorn. And then the next night, they give them large buckets of popcorn. Sure. So the sort of the twist of this study is that half of the people in all of these conditions get, like, shitty popcorn. They said it was, like, squeak when you eat it. Like, it's old, it's stale, it's gross. And two people apparently asked for their money back. And they're like, the popcorn's free. Like, just don't eat it.
0: And so this, of
1: course, makes a big splash because it turns out, you know, first of all, people eat way more when they are given this large bucket of popcorn. And secondly, they eat more of even like shitty food. So this is what he says in Mindless Eating about this study. Did people eat because they liked the popcorn? No. Did they eat because they were hungry? No. They ate because of all the cues around them. Not only the size of the popcorn bucket, but also the distracting movie, the sound of people eating popcorn around them, and the eating scripts we take to movie theaters with us. All of these were cues that signaled it was okay to keep on eating and eating.
0: So, like, I understand that people are eating this sort of mindlessly and without really any connection to the quality of the food or Mm -hmm. how fresh it was or anything like that, but, like... How does he get from there to – it's all these other – key. like, I've figured out what it is. Like, I know it's not this thing. Therefore, it's this other thing.
1: Exactly. Like,
0: how does he get from point A to point
1: E? These questions, Aubrey, are exactly the questions that nobody fucking asked at the time. <sighs> these two studies, like, they're written up in The Atlantic. They show up in The New York Times. I mean, there's just a huge frenzy of media activity around these two stories. And thus begins Brian Wansink's, like, long career of just, like, publishing blockbuster study after blockbuster study. This is an excerpt from a Vox article. His experiments have found, for example, that women who put cereal on their kitchen counters weigh more than those who don't. And that people will pour more wine if they're holding the glass than if it's sitting on the table.
0: I hate this shit so much, Mike. I know, dude. I remember years ago, do you remember that show The Doctors? It was like a daytime TV show where they had like a few doctors on. Mm -hmm. At the end of every show, they would read out shit like this that is like completely decontextualized, completely like nonsense, right? Yeah. And I absolutely remember being at a nail place one time, getting my nails done. The doctors was on in the background and they were like, here's an interesting finding. Women who have fresh cut flowers at home report being happier than those that don't. So if you want to make your wife happy, bring her some flowers. And I was like, (laughs) what the fuck is this? You're not going to talk about like who has 20 bucks to blow every week on fresh flowers? Like, flowers are expensive. Yeah. It's like a very broad statement, but because it comes from a sort of science-y source, totally. it feels more legit when you're like, it's still weird bullshit garbage. <laughs> it,
1: it, it's perfectly structured to be in that form of like, hey, did you know women who do this also have this? As if it's some kind of rule. It's
0: essentially like a Snapple Cap
1: fact. Yes, exactly. Where you're yes. like,
0: no, 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 no. Listen, the great thing about the Snapple Cap fact is that I find out that fish take naps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't make <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) me be a fish who takes a nap.
1: I mean, the best example of that is one of his studies that gets like an amazing amount of play in the mainstream media is one that shows men eat 93% more pizza and 86% more salad in the presence of women. What? It is one of those things where like people try to translate this into like a weight loss rule. They're like, don't eat with women. It's like, (laughs) I think something else is going on. (laughs) (laughs) There's also an infamous study where Brian goes through old editions of The Joy of Cooking. You know The Joy of Cooking has been around around since like 1936. Uh He publishes a study where he says only, you know, there's only about 18 recipes that have like endured from 1936 through all the editions to I think the most recent at the time was the 2006 edition. Hmm. And it turns out the calories in those recipes have increased significantly over time. So one of his sort of explanations for the obesity epidemic is this idea that like portions, unit sizes, the food environment has completely changed over time. And this is like a perfect little encapsulation of that. That like a sort of a normal dinner time recipe is just like 30% larger now than it was in 1936.
0: That feels observably true, right? Like in my lifetime alone, right? Like the largest drink size
1: that you can get. Has, like, doubled, maybe tripled, right? Another thing that he mentions in the study is that muffin tins, if you look at old muffin tins, the muffins were, like, half as big as they are now.
0: Yeah, 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 there you go.
1: Another infamous one is he measures the eye angle of cartoon characters on cereal boxes. What? And he finds that brands aimed at children, the cartoon characters are looking downward at an angle of 9.67 degrees – so that it looks to children in the grocery store as if they are looking at them. This is another of his like very famous studies that if you Google it, you can still find like 50 references to it.
0: Man, when you started talking about cartoon eye angles, I was like, are we going to get into real racist territory? (laughs) Anyway, back to this Dr. Seuss book from the 40s. Like,
1: oh no! For once, that isn't where that was going.
0: (gasps) Thank God. (laughs) First time
1: on the show. So by 2007... He's basically translating all of these findings into weight loss advice. Uh-oh. So his book, Mindless Eating, comes out in 2007, becomes a massive bestseller. It's, you know, reviewed in the New York Times and the New Republic. It's like this huge deal. What his research implies is that, like, there are all of these sort of small forces on our behavior, and if you can change those small forces, you can actually lose weight sort of without really knowing it, right? So, the you know, one of the main pieces of advice— that goes around from his book is like you can just switch to smaller plates in your house because people tend to eat less from smaller plates.
0: This explains why so many co-workers around that time were like, hmm, get a smaller plate. Right. This is absolutely what
1: people want to hear. You can become thin without having to really think about it. Exactly. And without anything else in society changing either. Mm-hmm. So we are going to watch a clip. Oh. This is a presentation of his work from a Michael Pollan documentary in the early 2000s. <laughs> <founders. laughs>
0: also, at some point, we're going to do some talking about Michael Pollan, man. I know,
1: dude. That's... I know.
2: So, um, grab a plate up there, the pasta's right on the stove, serve yourself up. Brian Wansink is an expert on eating behavior. He's discovered we're often not aware of why we eat as much as we do. Sometimes it's because of something we don't give the slightest thought to, like the size of our plate. We'll bring people in, we'll give them a large plate to serve themselves, but what they don't realize is that the pasta is cold. Wansing concocts an excuse so that everyone has to get a different plate, which is slightly smaller. These things weren't the right temperature. I'd like you to come back and just grab another plate out of the uh, cupboard there. One of the things we find is that they'll serve themselves a second time. They won't believe they served an amount any different than they did the first time. Did you guys notice anything different between the first time you served yourself and the second time you served yourself? It feels a lot smaller. It looks smaller. Oh. So here's one thing we found. The size of a plate tremendously biases us in terms of how much we serve. The smaller the plate, the less food people take. You serve four ounces on a 9-inch plate, you go, holy cow, I'll never be able to eat that. (laughs) So let's take a look at what happened to you guys. Now I have some big plate, 207 calories. Smaller plate, it dropped down to 162 calories. Whoa. That's about 40 calories. If this happened three times a day, over the course of a year, by using a smaller plate, you didn't weigh nine pounds less than you would if you had a bigger plate. Just really, really small things make this really huge difference.
0: I hate this shit. I know, <laughs> me too. I hate it so hard. I knew you would. It really feels like it plays into this sort of life hack kind of approach to... There are scientific reasons that are beyond your control. And if you just fix those scientific reasons, you will become thin. And again, like any fucking fat person can tell you (laughs) having less pasta on your plate does not make you nine pounds lighter at the end of the year. Right. Like it's just it's such weird facile logic. That I think because it's coming from a researcher and because it's coming from a researcher at an Ivy League university, that it
1: feels fancier. It feels more legit. I also love the fact that it's like this wildly artificial scenario, right? It's like it's only what appears to be college undergrads. They are all white. Hmm. They are in this weird situation where they serve themselves food. And then he says, no, no, no. We have to serve you again out of this like microwaved bowl and new plates. And then they take the plates, but it's not clear, like, if they're going to eat the first thing they serve themselves. So it kind of makes sense that, like, the second time you would take less because you're like, well, do I have to eat all of this? Yeah. The whole scenario is just so fucking weird and artificial that it's like, it's not clear to me that you can actually extrapolate from this.
0: Also, I'll tell you what, that pasta looked overcooked before it went back in the microwave. I know. It looked bad. It looked mushy by the time it came out. So So that part's also... Like, I would take less of the, like, it was already overcooked, and now it's, like, pasta mush.
1: I mean, do you remember this context? Do you remember the
0: book Nudge? Yes. Also, this was around the time that, like, Malcolm Gladwell sort of burst onto the scene, and we all started talking about 10,000 hours of whatever for mastery. And it was a whole wave of, again, this sort of, like, life hacking kind of stuff. Totally. That was, like, you just need to know these little Like, they seem small, but they're really important scientific findings that will impact every other thing about your life.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was like one of the most important, prominent ideas at the time was this idea of behavioral economics, that sort of the way that people behave is one of the books that came out at the time was called Predictably Irrational. Mm. So the canonical example that like showed up in every single article about this was organ donations. Mm. Some countries have like 17% of people volunteer to be organ donors. And then if you look at, I believe it was the Netherlands, it's like 60% of people. Hmm. And, you know, it seems like, oh my god, they're so much more virtuous. Like, what, what's going on in the Netherlands? that They're all so much nicer about their organs. And it turns out that it's just the default on the form. <laughs> in America, you have to take a box to say, yes, I will donate my organs. And in the Netherlands, you have to take a box that says, nope, I don't really want to donate my organs.
0: It's the same thing with automatic voter registration. Like, when people have to opt out of being a registered voter, more people are registered and more people turn out to vote.
1: Yes. And Brian Wansink was actually a huge part of that. So the guys that wrote the Nudge book, like the, the book that basically began this entire trend in 2008, they wrote a really long review of Brian Wansink's book in The New Republic. Ooh. Like this idea of sort of our eating behavior – Being a metaphor for all of these other behaviors, like whether we pay our taxes, which schools we send our kids to.
0: This feels like an extremely dude way of approaching the world, which is like, we
1: just need to listen to the data and then do what the data says. That's it. It just it was this very sort of, quote unquote, rationalist approach of that, you know, life can be broken down into these sort of inputs and outputs, like these little flow charts. Right. And we know that people will do X if we give them Y. Right. Like we can predict the ways that people are going to behave And all we need to do is follow the science and we'll be able to solve all of these social problems. Yeah. So before we get to the downfall, I just want to talk a little bit more about the kind of work that he was doing. He did a lot of workplace wellness consulting. Oh, no. I know. This is the thing. I don't want to get into it because we need to do a whole episode on like the unbelievable trash fire that is this field. But I just wanted you to read like one very brief excerpt. Like this was the kind of advice that was going around to workplaces at the time. This is an excerpt from his book, Slim by Design. And he's talking about how he's doing a consultation with Google to prevent what's called the Google 15. Fuck off. That when people start working at Google, because there's like these canteens everywhere and the food is really good and it's free, everybody gains weight when they start working at Google. This is one of the ideas that he comes up with. I'm going to send this to you because I cannot get through this without tittering.
0: Okay, To tackle the I gained weight before I knew it problem, Bob Evans, one of their software engineers, had an idea. Have you ever seen those iPhone or Android apps that let you upload a photo of yourself and it shows you what you would look like if you were 20 or 40 pounds skinnier or fatter? Oh, Mike, I hate this already. I know, it's, it, it only gets worse. <laughs> John figured out there might be a way to have a quote-unquote food scanner set up that could scan someone's tray and a camera screen in front of them would take their photo and instantly display what they would look like in a year if they ate this much food every day for lunch way cool is the end of that quote
1: it's one of those demented fucking things i've ever heard
0: i hate every so they have no concept of people with eating disorders or body dysmorphia they have no concept of like fat people and increasing bias they have no concept of like A lot of the things that I care the most about.
1: (laughs) Imagine being a fat person at Google and somebody gets their tray out and they hold it under this fucking miserable like minority report scanner and it shows them a body that looks like you. Like, what are we fucking doing here, Brian?
0: It really feels like they're a hop, skip, and a jump away from just adding like an oinking sound effect or something. You know what I mean? Like, I this is like uh This is like
1: school bully shit. Oh, yeah. Woof. He also, at one point in the same chapter, suggests that employees should have to sign health declarations.
0: Fuck off.
1: Where they promise their employers that they're going to like exercise two days a week. And that, like, if, they, if their BMI goes above 30, they have to be, like, mandatory attendance at Weight Watchers. Fuck off. I know. Truly, madly, deeply fuck off. So, again, we're going to save, like, most of our fire emojis for our eventual workplace wellness episode. But, like, that is a main thread of his work. The other main thread of his work is this Smarter Lunch Rooms program. Have you heard of this?
0: I remember this because, again, like I have a mom who's an early childhood ed person who never stops yelling about this study, <laughs> um, which is the kids were offered, I think it was like fruit and candy. Yeah, it was apples and cookies. Yeah, Apples and cookies. And they studied essentially like if you just offer kids an apple or a cookie, which one do they pick? Unsurprisingly, a lot of kids picked cookies. And then they put stickers of Elmo? Yes, it was Elmo. Is it Elmo? On apples, and then they were like, more kids chose the apples. Mm -hmm. But then, and this is the thing that my mom never stops yelling about, she's like, look at the ages of the kids that they're putting fucking Elmo stickers on apples for. They're like 10. 8 to 11, yeah.
1: Uh, you know who doesn't care
0: about Elmo is
1: like a fourth grader. Man, you are in danger, grave danger of spoiling this episode. Oh, really? (laughs) We will come back to this. Really, really? Yes. I mean, this is like one of the central studies that becomes the basis of this entire program. So this is by Nick Brown, a researcher who looks into this later. Here's how the study worked. Researchers recruited 208 students at seven elementary schools. As part of their regular lunch menu, these students were already allowed to take an apple, a cookie, or both in addition to their main dish. Before the study period, about 20% of the children chose an apple and 80% chose the cookie. But when researchers put an Elmo sticker on the apple, more than a third chose it. Mm. So it's like perfect Brian bait, right? It's cheap. It's easy. It doesn't require like taking away the cookie. It's just like this little tiny thing and you got more kids eating fruits and veg.
0: It does feel very odd to be like, what if fruits and vegetables were branded?
1: Yeah. What if these were
0: Star Wars grapes or something (laughs) where you're like, well, sort of... That's fine.
1: I mean, a lot of this actually is sort of trying to use traditional marketing techniques for, you know, relatively unsexy fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So another one of the canonical studies that's part of this program is renaming vegetables. What? Yeah, so they they try to sort of brand vegetables in cafeterias to, like, make them cool. So there's, like, X-ray vision carrots. It's one of them because, like, you know, carrots have beta carotene and that, like, helps your eyeballs. Mm. So some of the other ones, this is a list of the brands that they use for fruits and vegetables and lunchrooms. Orange squeezers, monkey phones, that's bananas, snappy apples, cool as a cucumber slices, sweetie pie sweet potatoes, and they renamed healthy bean burritos as big bad bean burritos. And so according to the studies... This actually increases consumption as much as 30%. Huh. So this basically becomes like a massive, like a massive sort of long-running program. And In 2007, he's appointed to the USDA and he starts helping them design this Smarter Lunchrooms program, which is like exactly what you would expect from his kind of work. Mm. There's a checklist of 15 different changes and they're all sort of along these lines. So it's, you know, you add a salad bar, but like you move the salad bar sort of in the middle of the cafeteria. So kids kind of have to walk around it, right? It's not like in a corner where they can ignore it. He suggests things like, you know, you put fruit in a bowl next to the cash register rather than like this special place where kids have to go search for it. He moves the chocolate milk to the back of sort of the rack so you have to like reach a little farther for it. It's all of these like little tweaks.
0: It's the school lunchroom equivalent of putting tabloids next to the cash register.
1: 100%. Yes. That's a very good metaphor. So, I did not know this when I started researching this, but, like, this was used in 30,000 schools. Whoa! So these are, like, the three main threads of his work. There's the weight loss stuff, there's the workplace wellness stuff, and there's the school lunchroom stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, he's giving talks on every continent, and he's quoted in the newspaper a billion times, and he's this massively famous researcher, like, one of the few sort of brand-name researchers in this field, and... On December 25th, 2016, the whole thing comes crashing down. Is this where we get to the scandal part? Super duper scandal part, yes. Excellent. Give me some scandal. I fucking love this. I, this is like one of my favorite downfalls. Like, really? <laughs> I feel bad about celebrating this, but like this is just one of the most delicious downfalls I've ever seen. Okay, so the entire thing, the dominoes start to fall with a blog post.
0: Wait, Brian Wansing? Writes a blog
1: post? Yeah. Like, he has a blog at the time that's quite well known. And, you know, he talks about, like, his research and sort of their findings and just, you know, in the ways that, like, academics have blogs. He'll just have sort of musings on various things. Sure. And so in late 2016, he writes a blog post that begins with three paragraphs that I am going to make you read.
0: Oh, is it going to be better or worse than the fucking Google scanner? Oh, way better. <laughs> okay, good. good,
1: good By good. the standards of our show, like, this is, this is weak shit. This is fine. Okay. Like, as far good, as good, good, the good. trauma meter that is always, like, bouncing in the red at the bottom of our show at all times, <laughs> like, this is green to yellow.
0: <laughs> okay, good to know. Okay. A PhD student from a Turkish university called to interview to be a visiting scholar for six months. When she arrived, I gave her a dataset of a self-funded failed study which had null results. It was a one-month study in an all-you-can-eat Italian restaurant buffet where we had charged some people half as much as others. I said, this cost us a lot of time and our own money to collect. There's got to be something here we can salvage because it's a cool, rich, and unique data set. I had three ideas for potential plan B, C, and D directions since plan A had failed. Every day, she came back with puzzling new results. And every day, we would scratch our heads and ask why and come up with another way to reanalyze the data with yet another set of plausible hypotheses. Eventually, we started discovering solutions that held up regardless of how we pressure tested them. I outlined the first paper and she wrote it up. This happened with a second paper and then a third paper, which was one that was based on her own discovery while digging through the data. What do you think? So basically, he talks about sort of bringing in this PhD student to help out at his lab. He's essentially asking her to keep reinterpreting the data basically until she finds something. And every day she goes and reinterprets the data and brings it back to him. And he goes, that's not quite it. Reinterpret it again. That's not quite it. Write this paper and write it differently. Uh, It seems real fucking wild to go back to the same data set again and again and again and go, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Right. Of course, interpretation is always, always, always part of the deal when you're doing research, right? Like everything gets interpreted by humans. There is nothing Mm -hmm. that is like fully, fully, fully objective as we want to think there is. And there's a point at which either there are conclusions to draw or there aren't. Yes. And when you start to force it, you start to change the shape of the data itself, right? Yes. It feels almost like um,
1: Photoshopping.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a point at which you're changing the contrast and the brightness, and then there's a point at which you're actually just manipulating what's in the photo.
1: Yes. Do you want to hear the titles of the papers that came out of all of this Data digging. Oh, God. Low prices and high regret. How pricing influences regret at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Lower buffet prices lead to less taste satisfaction. How traumatic violence permanently changes shopping behavior. And also, remember the study we mentioned earlier that men eat more in the company of women? Uh Uh-oh. That's one of the five studies that they get from just scraping this data basically to death to find any associations in it.
0: Right. So they didn't set out to be like, "Mm, let's take a pool of people who've experienced traumatic violence and see what happens to them in a grocery store. They were like, we are doing a study in a grocery store. What happens when we look at just the people who've had experiences with traumatic violence, basically,
1: right? Yes. That's a big oops. Yeah, it's bad. (laughs) And it's more than an oops, right? And so the reason why I find this so delicious, this is, you know, the cute opening anecdote to a blog post that, like, isn't about this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The blog post is basically this, like, rise and grind bullshit where he's comparing this, like, hardworking, unpaid Turkish researcher to a paid grad student in his lab who refused to do this for (laughs) him. The whole thing is like this fucking subtweet of this poor woman who left his lab and didn't want to do this like wildly unethical research. So he says, 6 months after arriving, the Turkish woman had 5 papers accepted or submitted. In comparison, the postdoc left after a year and also left academia with 1 quarter as much published as the Turkish woman. I think the person was also resentful of the Turkish woman.
0: God damn it. It's also, I will say, in this blog post, it feels extremely wild to watch someone commit career suicide without knowing that that's what they're doing. Right?
1: And having no idea? (laughs) It's really something. But so are you familiar with this term p-hacking?
0: It's one that I've heard. I don't totally, like, my understanding is that it is sort of this general practice of like you interpret the data so much that you start to manipulate it. Basically, yeah.
1: I actually think that a better term for this is harking which stands for hypothesis after results are known.
0: Oh, that's a great acronym.
1: It's good. And it's a good word too. You can say like harking at the moon and stuff. (laughs) This is basically what Brian is describing here, where it's like you've gathered all of this data, the central question that you're trying to answer, you didn't get the result that you wanted or it's inconclusive or whatever. And so basically you just start like systematically going through your data And being like, well, what about, you know, men eating with women? What about like older people and pizza? What about salad? You just start going through it and being like, well, is there anything else here? Hmm. This is a problem in science generally, but it's especially a problem in nutrition research. I think that's something that people don't really know or like haven't really internalized is that there's essentially no way to research nutrition. Mm. Because you can't really induce diet changes in people in any sort of scientifically robust way, like this is why essentially every study that compares like the Atkins diet to the Ornish diet, none of them actually find interesting results because nobody can stay on these diets very long.
0: Right, almost all of those studies are like... There's, like, a little section where they just sort of mention briefly, like, 70% of the people on this diet dropped off. Anyway, the results are blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well...
1: Exactly. The only thing that leaves you is to survey what people are already doing, right? So this is how you get a billion of these studies where they'll take, you know, 10,000 people or these, like, giant cohorts, and they'll ask them a bunch of questions. Do you eat blueberries? Do you eat apples? Do you have cancer? Are you tall? Are you short? Are you Are you redheaded? And then you can publish the associations that you find. People who eat breakfast every day, like, way less than people who don't eat breakfast every day. Like, every day you can find a study coming out that is, like, along these lines.
0: Right. People who ate full-fat dairy as a kid are more likely to be thin in adulthood. Exactly. It's like, blows people's brains out of their heads and is one of these sorts of associations where you're like, okay, but what else does that mean?
1: Exactly. There's a really good series of articles by Christy Ishwanden at BuzzFeed who sort of does a deep dive into, like, the way that these large-scale studies are done. And the sort of the main thing to know about these huge survey studies where they're asking people, you know, about their health conditions and about their weight is that, like, the data is total trash because there's really only two ways that you can get information from people about what they're eating. The first way is you do these like 24-hour recall studies. You keep a diary for a day and then you sort of write down like, today I had a sandwich for lunch. And then like I went to McDonald's for dinner or whatever. Mm -hmm. But of course the problem with that is that first of all, the minute you start keeping a food diary, you start eating differently. Yeah, that's right. Like if somebody tells you to write down everything that you're eating, you're probably going to eat better that day. And even that, Christy in her article talks about like she goes to an Indian place and eats like a curry for dinner. And she's like, well, how many calories was that? How many grams was that? What were the ingredients in that curry? Yeah. None of us know, like, the weight of what we're eating or whatever.
0: Totally. And even even when you do have sort of, like, straight ahead kinds of foods that you're eating, I even mean, if you're, like, eating a stalk of celery, the difference between a small stalk of celery and a large stalk of yeah, celery exactly. is subjective, right?
1: So, you know, 24-hour... Food diaries are problematic in their own way. And so a lot of studies will do food questionnaires. They're called food frequency questionnaires, which is like a pretty standard methodology for these kinds of studies that include all kinds of, you know, a huge battery of questions about like how often in general you eat various foods. Uh Uh-oh. You know, as you are probably guessing, this is also super problematic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is an excerpt from Christy's article in BuzzFeed where she actually took one of these questionnaires. Huh. Some questions, how often do you drink coffee, were straightforward. Others confounded us. Take tomatoes. How often do I eat those in a six-month period? In September, when my garden is overflowing with them, I eat cherry tomatoes like a child devours candy. Mm -hmm. But I can go November until July without eating a single fresh tomato. So how do I answer the question? Questions about serving sizes perplexed us all. In some cases, the survey provided weird but helpful guides. For example, it depicted what a half cup, one cup, or two cups of yogurt looked like with photographs of bowls filled with various amounts of wood chips. I don't know why they didn't just use bowls filled with yogurt, but whatever. It seems
0: really odd to choose
1: wood chips. It seems chips. like an easy you one. You know what
0: it is? It's the um, commercials for tampons and pads that are like, it's just mystery blue liquid. Yeah, You know that time of month when you, like, just there's a bunch of Windex that shows up in your underpants? <laughs> this is that.
1: <laughs> Other questions seemed absurd. Who on this planet knows what a cup of salmon or two cups of ribs looks like? I noticed that when I was offered three choices of serving sizes, my inclination was to pick the middle one regardless of what my actual portion might be. Mm. There's quite a few studies of, like, how bad these are. Like, in one of these large cohort studies, they found that people were underestimating their calorie counts every day by as much as 800 calories. Whoa! And so it basically makes, like, all of these comparisons are completely invalid. Because you can't say that, you know, blueberries prevent glaucoma or something if, like, you don't actually know how much blueberries people are eating.
0: This feels like an inroad to the studies that we're sort of constantly getting on foods that are sort of like controversial nutritionally, right? Like Mm -hmm. cranberry juice is really good for you. No, it's really bad for you. Dark chocolate, have it every day. Never have it. Oh my God. Red wine, drink it for your heart health, but not after age 70 or what, like whatever the things are, right? That we're sort of constantly getting conflicting information about a handful of things like eggs were this way for a long time. Fucking eggs, man. Again, it makes it feel like it is sort of impossible to know, You know, as a consumer, what you should and shouldn't be eating. And actually, like, the answer here is to be more transparent about, like, it's really hard to find conclusive findings. Yeah. We just don't know. We're not good at that. We don't have media systems that are especially good at sort of display things as take it with a grain of salt, right? They're just like a bunch of systemic and individual problems. Also, I would say, like, we're asking people to do this thing, which is estimate the size and amount and weight and caloric value of things without really having any training in how people should do that generally speaking we're all pretty bad at that and we shouldn't actually get good at it because when we get good at it a lot of us develop eating disorders
1: (laughs) yeah yeah no kidding she has a really interesting section in her article where she talks about you know because this questionnaire includes 54 questions this is where p hacking comes in, right? Because you're getting 54 variables. Mm-hmm. And she says the food frequency questionnaire we used produced 1,066 variables, and the additional questions we asked sorted survey takers according to 26 possible characteristics. This vast data set allowed us to do 27,716 regressions. Holy shit. So it, according to the data that they collected, People who eat cabbage are more likely to have any belly buttons.
2: People who eat
1: shellfish are more likely to be right-handed. People who eat more fried fish are more likely to be Democrats. And people who eat bananas have higher scores on the SAT verbal.
0: Yeah, I ate a lot of bananas. These are all
1: statistically significant results, by the way. Like, these are all technically publishable.
0: I also think, like, part of the backdrop of findings like these and interpreting findings like these and people just sort of running with them is this desire to believe that scientifically we have arrived? Yes. Right? That we sort of like know everything that is knowable. Mm -hmm. We have reached the pinnacle and we are there now. And now we're looking out onto all of the world as it is, right? Rather than going wait a minute. (laughs) Sometimes people are not as meticulous as we want them to be. Or sometimes we put wishful thinking into our science. Or sometimes there's shit we don't know and techniques that are developing now that will help us in the future. Instead, what we get is a conversation about science that is like, the science says this, therefore, it's true. Therefore, you gotta get smaller plates or something where you're like, well, that's not the whole picture.
1: I also think that one of the fundamental misunderstandings here, and this comes up so much, is that When you hear that something is a significant result, Mm
0: -hmm. that makes
1: you think that it's big. Like if I say watching Legally Blonde had a significant effect on my life, you'd be like, okay, it's a big effect. Yeah. But the term statistically significant – All that means is that it's unlikely to be due to chance. Yeah. This is from a Nature article about this. Critics bemoan the way that p-values can encourage muddled thinking. Last year, for example, a study of more than 19,000 people showed that those who meet their spouses online are less likely to divorce than those who meet offline. That might have sounded impressive, but the effects were actually tiny. Meeting online nudged the divorce rate from 7.7% down to 6%. (laughs) So those are statistically significant (laughs) results. But... People who met online have a 1.5% lower divorce rate is not that interesting.
0: And also, if you're using a site like, say, eHarmony, where they're like, it's science, we're matching you based on science, that that also, like, increases your buy-in to the method of meeting and makes you feel like it's somehow more legit. Yeah. Again, there are so many variables here that could Mm -hmm. account for these differences. And when you just say people who met online have, you know, are less likely to get divorced, people are like,
1: oh, I
0: should be looking online, right? Rather than going, well, wait, what does that mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, this also comes up a lot in sort of anything involving mortality that you always hear these things of like eating nuts reduces your risk of prostate cancer by 40%. Yeah. And then you look at the actual numbers and it's like, you know, you have a three and a hundred thousand chance and that goes down to like a two and a hundred thousand chance. It's not clear to me that I need to change my dietary habits to make this extremely rare thing, like slightly rarer.
0: Totally. And I think in our brains, right, because most of us are sort of accepting this news pretty passively and, again, pretty uncritically, we hear that as eat nuts three times a week and you definitely won't get prostate cancer. Exactly. Part of this sort of breakdown happens in the research itself. Part of it happens in how the research is presented in the paper. Part of it happens in how the research is interpreted and reported in media. Mm -hmm. And part of it happens sort of at the point of consumption, which is the point at which we hear it and sort of translate it into what we're going to do in our daily lives. There are breakdowns at every step along the way in this process.
1: I also think, you know, the fundamental point about all of this research, too, especially these large, you know, surveys, is that they don't show causation. Right. That they're very limited in what they can show. All they can show is associations. Right. You know, there's ways that you can control for poverty, you can control for education. I'm a little skeptical of that sort of how much statistical controlling you really can do. But the fundamental fact is that all you can find is associations. And oftentimes those are measuring a third thing. Mm. There's probably something independent that is affecting how many bananas you eat and your score on the SAT verbal.
0: Right. Bananas as a snack are also sort of like speaking to a really specific sort of like racial class and cultural background, right? That yeah. like if you're in an immigrant family, your after school snacks might be a different thing. That doesn't make you less likely to do well on <laughs> your SAT verbals, right? Like there yeah. are other sort of factors at play here. Yeah. Ugh. It feels really challenging. I find myself getting really angry as we're talking about all this. Dude. Because it's like a huge, weird, like not intentionally, well, I don't even know. Maybe intentionally, like it's a grift economy.
1: I mean, this is this is what's so hard about this, is because I think for people of good faith, if you're actually trying to find out sort of which nutritional habits are the best for promoting health, there's no Perfect way to gather that information. There's no good way to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Most of the people in this field are trying to kind of triangulate, zigzag their way to real answers. But the problem is that these methodologies, like the gaping holes in these methodologies, leave them vulnerable to grifters and also vulnerable to the incentives of science. So one of the things that is really important in Brian Wansink's story is this idea that you have to publish, right? If you want to get tenure, if you want to get noticed in your field, you have to publish as much as possible. And for a lot of people, you know, if you've gone to all of this work to gather this data, you know, you've spent months watching what people are doing at a pizza buffet, it's like, well, fuck, I can't just get rid of this. I spent a ton of money. There's grant money on the line.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also feel like because of the ways in which sort of capital S science, right, has been used as a political football in recent years, mm-hmm. particularly around climate change, particularly around, I mean, COVID is a great example. Do you believe the science or do you not believe the science? So there has become this sort of reaction on the left to be like, we believe in science, which means that we sort of like accept a lot of this stuff uncritically, right? Right. That we sort of slip slide into this mode of just like whatever science says is the truth without really a recognition of, you know, what most researchers and most scientists will tell you, which is that science is like a series of very active participatory conversations. Right. Like the point of science
1: is to figure
0: out things we don't know.
1: (laughs) And it's a process. And it's a process. And so this actually brings us to the original Pizzagate.
0: This is not... Comet Pizza. No. This is God. not QAnon. This is a different no. pizza-related scandal.
1: This is just the clickbait title that I'm giving this episode. Robert, <laughs>
0: let's be clear.
1: So after this blog post comes out, the comment section is an absolute red wedding. <laughs> Everybody in the comment is like, this is why I left science. What you're describing is like exactly the problem with science. So there are four grad students Kind of random people. They're not like official investigators. They're basically just people who read this blog post, and they're like, this dude sucks. (laughs) Their names are Tim Van Zee, James Heathers, Nick Brown, and Jordan Anaya. And these four dudes dive deep into Brian Wansink's work. And the first thing that they dismantle are these pizza buffet studies that he was talking about that he sent to this Turkish researcher. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that they find is in these four studies that are all based on the same data, they have a total of 95 references to Brian Wansink's other work. You know, in the literature review, they'll say like, blah, 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 we know larger plates, blah, 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 right? And yet, none of them have any links to each other. And none of them even mention that there's been any other publications with this same data. (sighs) So that's already like... Kind of a statement that like we know what we're doing here.
0: This is like an active choice to kind of bury the lead.
1: Yes. So the other main thing that they find in these pizza studies is weird statistical irregularities. Uh Uh-oh. We have to do some math to understand this. Okay. I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, partly because I'm not sure that I understand all of this, but I'm going to try to present it as well as I can. (laughs) So basically, imagine if you had like a sample of 100 people And you're trying to figure out, like, do people like broccoli, right? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. And you're surveying them. And the only two options are yes or no. They can't say, I don't know, right? They have to say yes or no. If I did that study and I came to you and I said 32.5% of people like broccoli, Uh huh. that's an impossible number, right? If I'm surveying exactly 100 people, there's a finite number of sort of results that I can get, right? Right. So if I say 32.5% of people, that would mean that 0.5% of a person yeah. is in that data.
0: Yeah, that's right. Does that make sense? Right. If you're doing a study of three people, which you wouldn't because that's too small, your options are 33.333% or 100%? Exactly. If it's two people, your options are 50% or 100%.
1: Yes. That's better than my broccoli thing. Exactly. (laughs) And also, even if you have like 672 participants, there's going to be a finite number of options that you can have. Mm. Even though it's going to be a much larger number of options, it is also going to be finite. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they find when they start going through these pizza studies is that a lot of the numbers are impossible. For the sort of the regret data, people are rating their regret on a one to seven scale, right? Mm -hmm. I don't regret it or I regret it super duper much. And one of the samples, like I think it's people who ate more than three pizza slices, there's only 10 people in that tranche. Uh So if all 10 people say seven, I regret it the maximum amount, right? To get the average, you divide it by 10, right? Because that's the number of people. A total of 70, a score of a total of 70, divide that by 10, you'd get seven. If everybody says seven, but one person says six, you'd get 69, and then you divide that by 10, and that'd be 6.9. And you can keep going all the way down, 6.8, 6.7, right? right?
0: It's basically like you'll get a to a one-tenth of one percentage point. Exactly. No matter what. Yeah. You can't get pi out
1: of that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So what they notice in the tables of like the published tables of these pizza studies is that one of the averages is 2.25. What? But- and another one is 3.92. Are they then just fully making up numbers? This is the thing. To this day, we don't know exactly what happened. The only thing that makes any sense is that like they're doing this from like different sample sizes. Like maybe they were using eleven people for these calculations and forgot to replace them. But what this indicates is that it's like p-hacked to fucking death.
0: It is fascinating to me that all of this past peer review with like dude, very simple arithmetic issues. I know. Right, like this isn't even like how do you interpret data, blah, 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 blah. This is just like, do all the numbers in the first four columns add up to the number in the fifth column? No? They eventually find
1: 150 mathematical impossibilities. <gasps> Another really weird thing is that the, the sample sizes don't add up. So, you know, if you have like 100 people in your study and then it's like people who ate no pizza, people who ate one slice, people who ate two or more slices, that's your whole study. That should add up to 100, right? But it doesn't add up to 100.
0: Right. That happens when like I'm thinking about this sort of like the data analysis that they're doing being a little bit like Hansel and Gretel style that like yes. they didn't quite leave the trail of breadcrumbs to get them back out.
1: Yes. So basically after Pizzagate, after like they look at these four papers... Everybody starts looking at this guy. <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. So James Heather's one of the guys that's actually looking into this. Designs a it's called Sprite. I forget what it stands for, hmm. but it's this statistical tool that can actually reconstruct results. Whoa! And so they start going back through his papers. Remember the popcorn study? Yeah, 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 yeah. the ba- the bad tasting popcorn. That one falls apart. There's like numbers in there that should be impossible. To be fair, that one is like they say that that's not as bad as some of the other ones. Mm -hmm. There's one where it's one of the workplace wellness ones where if you're sitting near a candy dish, you eat more than if it's like placed far away from you. That one falls apart. Another one that gets debunked is the Bottomless Bowls study. It just has a lot of data in it that like literally is impossible. Like there's no way to get those averages and standard deviations from real data.
0: It's so tricky because none of this means that any of this is definitely true or definitely untrue. Yes. There's a bunch of stuff we thought we knew and we don't actually know. And it's gotten so far. Far out into sort of the public, you know, imagination and into our sort of collective bloodstream, that you kind of can't unring that bell, right? By the time people sort of just sort of start to intuitively believe and understand that men eat more Mm -hmm. pizza in front of women. You can't be like, well, actually, mathematically, those findings were both. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't mean anything to anybody.
1: Yeah. And also, I would not be remotely surprised if it turned out that if a candy dish is near you, you end up eating more candy during the day. Like, I think that that's extremely plausible. I also think that, like, this is the whole point of science, (laughs) is to actually confirm things that seem plausible. Like, it seems super plausible that the sun rotates around the earth. But then you look into it and you're like, whoops, it seems like this very common sense, plausible thing turns out not to be true.
0: This is the episode when Mike comes out as a flat earther. I know. (laughs) Listen, there is a glass dome. There are flat edges. Why is there a horizon? I'm just asking questions.
1: Did you not know that I was a Ptolemy stan? (laughs) I like all the loop-de-loops. And then it's like from this mathematical stuff. It's just like a nonstop avalanche of like ethical, weird stuff. Like there's a huge amount of self-plagiarism, like entire articles that he's basically repurposing for book chapters and vice versa, like tons of that stuff. There's – my favorite one is apparently he wrote some weird article about World War II veterans and sort of like how trauma affects their eating habits, something, something. And in his sample – this is like right there in black and white. In his sample, 20% of the participants are women. (laughs) The whole thing is based on like combat veterans and like trauma among combat veterans. And it's like, well, women, women didn't fight in World War II. We're doing
0: a study on the Tuskegee Airmen. And in this sample, we're going to talk through the 50% of them that were white women. And you're like, what? No!
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so we also get in this, like, wave of downfall stuff – we also get the complete collapse of all of this school lunches shit. What
0: happens with the school? Lunch? Oh my like, fucking god! Is it
1: still is it still in play? Like what? I mean, the school lunch stuff the the program is now defunct. Mm. I mean, I mean, I think that like whatever, there's probably schools that have like bowls of fruit next to the cash register. Like, I, I think that some of the principles are probably still in play. Sure, but as a sort of USDA program, it's it's gone. Like their website, you can only look at it on archive.org. Like the thing is toast. Mm. There's a researcher named Eric Robinson who starts looking into this stuff. And the first thing that he finds, it's actually like pretty bad and pretty bad that nobody noticed this before. But they started implementing this program in 2014. The first randomized control trials of these principles didn't start until 2014. So basically when they implemented this program, they had no data. One of the things that Eric Robinson also notes in his paper is that, you know, there's these 15 strategies that schools were supposed to be implementing. It appears to this day, only six of them have ever actually
0: been studied. Yeah, that just seems wild. And also, I will say, like, there is already so much that we expect out of schools, right? Like, we're expecting teachers and school administrators and school staffers to carry the Mm -hmm. weight of so many of our social anxieties. Oh, my God. And this also becomes another one that they're now
2: holding and carrying,
0: right? But like all of our weird shit around health and weight and whatever that kids generally don't have in the same way, um, this is like part of how we ensure that kids pick that stuff up, right? And that we sort Mm -hmm. of project it onto them.
1: And also, I mean, this was the thing that I was biting my tongue to keep from saying earlier when you were talking about the Elmo Uh stuff. So the Elmo study, choose an apple with an Elmo sticker or a cookie, right? Yeah. It turns out the study wasn't on 8 to 11-year-olds. It was on 3 to 5-year-olds. Well, that makes more sense. Right? You sniffed it out. Millions of researchers did not sniff this out, Aubrey. You knew. What? (laughs) What? I mean, truly,
0: like, anyone who has spent any amount of time around a 9- or 10-year-old can tell you that even if they still like Elmo, they sort of know that they
1: aren't expected to. So, like, this is a fucking wild error to make. Like, I thought it was among 8- to 11-year-olds. It was actually 3- to 5-year-olds in daycares. So this has no application to elementary schools.
0: Well, and also, like, again... Children ages three to five are in a completely different state of brain development. And impulse control. And like, it's not quite like you should be studying another species, but it is like so far off the mark.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the whole concept of choosing food is like very different for a four-year-old versus a 10-year-old. Yes! There's also... Another fucked up thing – this actually shows up in a lot of lunchroom studies. I've been reading studies all week Mm -hmm. that in this sort of this study where they made the chocolate milk harder for the kids to grab, what happened is they took more milk. So it's like, yay, they're taking milk. It's not flavored. It's not sugared. But then they're not actually drinking it. (laughs) Getting kids to take vegetables – is a totally different thing from getting them to eat vegetables.
0: Like, it is very easy to get my nephew to put vegetables on his plate. Yes. That's fine. He will do that without objection. When you're like, hey, you got to have a couple more bites of vegetables, he'll be like, how big of a bite?
1: Let's negotiate. (laughs) There's also, this is one of the fucking pettiest things I've ever seen in an academic paper. You know, there are like randomized control trials that show that, you know, smarter lunchrooms do actually improve, you know, the number of fruits and vegetables that kids are eating. And, you know, this is sort of evidence that Brian Wansink was using for years and he would talk about it in his TED Talks and like, we're doing this and it really improves things for kids. And then when Eric Robinson goes back to the data, the studies show that, you know, after all of these interventions in schools, like the biggest sort of study that has been done on this shows that kids are eating point One unit of fruit more than kids who aren't getting this intervention. And so he has a whole page of his paper dedicated to photos of this. So he goes figure one, a small apple. Figure two, 10% of an apple and it shows like this lonely little slice of an apple on a plate and he like clearly took the photos at his office like they're in the shitty break room.
0: I love everything about
1: this. That's fucking brutal, dude. You could have just said it. There is a real (laughs) special place in
0: my heart for like the extreme pettiness that is reserved for very high-minded fields.
1: (laughs) Love it. So basically it appears that like all of these interventions increased the amount of fruit that kids ate. By one tenth of an apple. We're not talking about like a revolution in children's consumption here. We're talking about extremely modest effects. Yeah. And that was never how he was describing them publicly. It's
0: so hard because this feels like a real like Emperor's New Clothes kind of an episode.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is honestly like my biggest revelation from this is that, you know, there's the statistical stuff, there's the p-hacking stuff. But the worst thing that he did was, like, out in public. Yeah. Like, one of the things Eric Robinson mentions is that, you know, he would have these studies where, you know, we find kids are eating 0.1 unit of apple more – And then in the conclusion of the article, he'd be like, this is an effective intervention for childhood obesity. God fucking damn it. And you're like, well, it's very evidently not.
0: You have to line up so many dominoes before you can sort of flick one and have them all fall the way that you think they should, right? And this guy essentially set up two dominoes and they didn't make it past sort of the finish line, right? And he was like, we did it!
1: (laughs) There's another example in here is that there's articles where in the abstract he says that you know giving kids pre-sliced fruit increased fruit consumption by 71% and then you read through the paper and it actually increased it by 4% <laughs>
0: If you and I, as people who are not, uh, we don't have math degrees, like if this stuff jumps up out to you and I just at face value, right? Like that that feels like, uh uh-oh.
1: It's not good. It's not
0: great. It's not great.
1: So this is actually sort of like the next stage of the downfall. There's sort of like this year-long period where like the Pizzagate stuff is happening and there's statistical analyses and there's a lot of the sort of behind the scenes or like intra-academic debates about this Brian Wansink guy. Uh-huh. But it hasn't really bubbled up to the surface. Like, sort of normies were not really noticing this. And the next stage, this is so weird, the next stage of this downfall basically happens with a tweet thread by the Joy of Cooking Twitter <laughs> account. <laughs>
0: oh. God, I really love the idea of a nutrition researcher getting owned by the joy of cooking. Fucking owned. By my grandma's cookbook.
1: (laughs) So, do you remember the joy of cooking like, study that he did. Sure. They had, of course, seen his study. They'd seen it, like, it's been cited more than 30 times. It shows up in media reports. It's something that, like, everyone just sort of mentions in, like, cute little parentheses whenever Joy of Cooking comes up. They're like, LOL, the portion sizes are so much bigger. There's this great New Yorker article by friend of the show, Helen Rosner, Mm -hmm. who interviewed people at Joy of Cooking about, like what it felt like to be the target of this study and sort of trying to debunk it for years. And like the world wasn't ready. Finally, after sort of things start to domino out of place for Brian Wansink, they put out this thread saying that like, first of all, the entire idea of his original study was that, you know, there were all these different recipes throughout time. He could only find 18 that appeared in every single joy of cooking to compare to each other. The joy of cooking is like uh we found 275 recipes <laughs> that were in every single edition. And then they do this like this whole thing about it's kind of absurd to say that portion sizes have increased when most recipes in the book aren't meant to be eaten all at once. Like one of the recipes that he sort of says like has gotten bigger over the years is gumbo. <laughs> it's like a big ass pot of gumbo.
0: Yeah, I mean It feels a little bit like, look, my reference point for this whole section is just going to be the New York Times cooking section Mm -hmm. and the comments on those recipes. Have you ever looked at the comments in the New York Times cooking section?
1: Oh, aren't they like, I replaced the chicken with beef and the rice with styrofoam chips? Like, it's all just like, (laughs) I modified it.
0: And it was not very good. One star, (laughs) (laughs) Come on, dude. And that feels like the part of the challenge here, right? Is like, you can't and don't know. Like, also, hey, Brian Wonsink, you love your plate sizes so much. How big are the plates that people are eating the gumbo off of? hmm? Yeah. Good Lord.
1: That study was basically trash. Like, this is sort of the overall frustration. There were dozens of articles written about this. The, like, joy of cooking portions are getting bigger. Like, what? It's just not a story that means anything. And it never was. Whoa. So... The final chapter of this downfall, and I think probably the most important one, is a reporter named Stephanie Lee at BuzzFeed does a public records request. You know, a lot of the people that Brian Wonsink has been corresponding with are employees of universities. Mm -hmm. And universities are public institutions, and you can FOIA them. And so she gets this huge trove of emails from New Mexico State University, where one of his collaborators works, And she basically finds that all of this was totally deliberate. What? He was basically running this lab as like a publication factory in a very explicit way. There's all these emails about sort of the same way that it was with the pizza study, where it's like they've gathered all this data, and then whatever grad student gathered it has moved on. And then he'll assign like another graduate student to sort of mess with the data until they can get something publishable out of it. And so he says in one of the emails, a lot of these papers are laying around on our desktops and they're like inventory that isn't working for us. We've got so much huge momentum going, this could make our productivity legendary. Hmm. In in one case, there's this data that's like how people shop in grocery stores where they don't speak the language. And it's just like, isn't all that interesting? And they didn't really find like nothing jumped out of the data. And he's like, oh, we'll keep looking at lower and lower tier journals until you can get it published.
0: <laughs> this is such a weird capitalism
1: forward approach oh, to yeah. like
0: scientific findings. It's real it's really odd. That feels really odd to me.
1: And also media forward. yeah Because in a lot of these emails he's also, you know, people will come to him with ideas and they'll be like, "Ooh, that'll definitely go viral." Ugh. So like this is a very explicit goal of his. He's even at one point training his grad students how to pitch their findings to the media. Like they'll have little sessions where they'll practice their, like, elevator speeches to media sources.
0: Which isn't in and of itself nefarious, right? Mm. Like, you practice elevator speeches for all kinds of stuff, but if, again, if that is the focus, you're not going to have findings that are as useful or as solid as you would want them to be.
1: And eventually, the Cornell Sun, the newspaper of the university, interviews his former grad students, and they say that, like, they felt really uncomfortable with the way that they were pressured to manipulate data, to Mm. frame things for the media, to try to get these things to go viral. It seems like this was like a very well-known problem among people who worked with him.
0: Yeah, and... There's like this intense power dynamic there, right? Yes. That he is like a nationally renowned researcher. You are a grad student or an employee who's working for him. This is the person you would go to for a reference. Exactly. There is not a neutral power relationship here.
1: I had a bunch of other studies that I was going to debunk, but like I think you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Most of this stuff (laughs) – most of the stuff doesn't hold up. And I feel like there's the sort of – there's the debunkable articles, but then – I think the much bigger problem with his work is this thing of him deliberately framing articles to get media play and a lot of these articles a lot of them are just fucking dumb. Yeah. There's a really interesting article by this child marketing researcher guy. This is way before the sort of the scandal happened. This is in 2014 who looks into Brian Wansings. Remember the study on, you know, cartoon eyes looking downward at children? Uh-huh. This like actual marketing researcher writes this long essay who's like this is dumb. Like, this is not a real study. You can't measure the angle of eyeballs in cartoon characters. (laughs) He includes photos of like the Trix rabbit. The Trix rabbit is looking upwards, but his like eyes are tilted down. And he's like, well, does this count as down or straight on? You can see him sort of sputtering in the text. He's like, this is dumb. Like, "Why, (laughs) why was this published?" And of course, the reason why it was published was because you get media out of it.
0: Yeah, and I could totally see as a marketing person that you'd be like, We're not doing that. We're doing other
1: things, but we're not doing that. What? We're manipulating children in other ways. (laughs) You're making us look evil in the wrong ways. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2018, he's pushed out of Cornell. Mm. In September of 2018, the Journal of the American Medical Association retracts six of his papers These grad students, there's like a running tally of all of the articles with, you know, plagiarism and conclusions that aren't supported by the data, et cetera. And it's up to 52 publications. Whoa! Some of them are self-plagiarism, which like I honestly don't put in the same category as like faking your data kind of stuff. Mm. But also they don't include the papers where like they just shouldn't exist, like the cartoon study.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: There's been 13 articles have been officially retracted. And 15 of his articles have been officially corrected.
0: Out of how many articles altogether?
1: So the, he actually says this on his website. He has like a brianwansink.com. Mm. He says 7% of my research articles were retracted. Oh, brother. <laughs> so like that's his little way of like downplaying like how severe this is. But it's also – it's not clear how many articles people have looked into, right? the The denominator is not – his total body of work, the denominators, how many did people investigate?
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: I noticed that none of these debunkings related to his work on workplace wellness. So I was like, okay, Brian Wansink, workplace wellness, just Googled it, found a random paper. And then like the sample sizes didn't add up <laughs> in the first, the first paper that I looked at. wow, And it also had conclusions that were not remotely supported by the data at all. Oof. And again, the first one that I looked at, So I think that, like, I think people just got sick of debunking this guy's papers after a certain point. Yeah. But I think that, like, a much larger number of them also wouldn't hold up to scrutiny if you took a look.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. Also, I would not be surprised if he was like, 7% of my papers have been, you know, questioned or discredited or whatever. And then you, like, look at the data set and you're like, it can't be 7%. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's mathematically impossible, Brian. Have you learned nothing? (laughs)
0: I think it's, it is it is worth looking at him and his work very closely, and I also think in the same way that his work encourages us to look at folks sort of on an individual level – and there's an impulse to resist there. I think there's an impulse to resist here, which is only looking at him and not also looking at, like, hey, all of this stuff passed muster for all the systems that we have. Oh, yeah. This went through the entire peer review process. This got published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, like, whatever the biggest journals are, right? So that also feels like a really challenging layer to to add on to all of this is that this isn't an exception. This isn't someone who skirted the system. This is someone who went through the system and this is what came out. Exactly.
1: I mean, I think there's a huge media story here too in that the New York Times should not be quoting anybody 60 times. Mm. That just to me is just a huge red flag when you're going back to the same source over and over again because then you have kind of like this mutualistic relationship between the journalist and the researcher. Mm-hmm. I listened to a really interesting podcast series on the Dr. John Berardi show about sort of the you know scientific debunking as an institution. They said something really interesting. They said that you know in fields of science where not very much is known, there's just a lot of mysteries still to solve. It's oftentimes the most confident people, not necessarily the most knowledgeable people mm-hmm. or the most careful people who get the most attention. And I think that Brian Wansink really took advantage of that, that he's like a good public speaker. He's handsome. He's straight and white and cis. Mm. He's just kind of out in public giving good TED Talks, you know, writing very pop, easy to read books. Yeah. And I still cannot get over the fact that, you know, all this stuff about like weight loss. you know, use smaller plates, eat one fewer candy bar a day, you'll lose 27 pounds. He never, it appears, even attempted to test any of this. Yeah. And that's really incredible to me because- His entire thesis, you know, his entire career was dedicated to this idea that, you know, we can make inadvertent small changes to our food environments and lose a bunch of weight. Well, why not take a hundred families... And swap out 50 of them with smaller plates and see what happens. Yeah. You know, people can't stay on the Atkins diet for six months. People can eat off of smaller plates for six months. That's actually a pretty easy test to do. Yeah. And yet he never even tried.
0: You know, we talk in sort of food world and uh, nutrition world about health halos, right? things that seem to take on more value and almost more moral value because they appear to be healthy. There's like a little bit of a health halo effect with nutrition research. Oh, yeah. We are all in this sort of constant state of desperation for more concrete answers than the various and sundry diet marketing that we're exposed to. And I think when someone comes along who is from the Academy who has trained in the scientific method and, you know, does something that seems official and more concrete. Yeah. We sort of put folks who do that research up on a pedestal and put that research
1: up on a pedestal in Mm -hmm. a very uncritical way. Yes. I mean, this is the story of how far you can go if you are telling people things they want to hear. I should also mention, I can't believe you just brought up the term health halo. Do you know who coined the term health halo? Brian Wansink.
0: Nah, fuck. Come on. Really?
1: Yeah, dude. Michael. This brings us to our happy epilogue. Do you want to hear the happy epilogue? Let's hear it. I was totally surprised by this, actually. So in the research for this episode, I did a lot of reading on school lunches generally. Did you know that school lunches have gotten, like, way better? Really? Yes. Yes. So in 2010, the Obama administration passed the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. Mm. And like there's all these studies showing that like kids are eating more fruits and vegetables. Kids are eating more whole grains. They took – a lot of schools took like chocolate milk and strawberry milk out of schools. A lot of them took soda out. There's all this data now showing that like the average school lunch is significantly more healthy than the average like bagged lunch.
0: That's I'm so I'm so glad to hear that there it sounds like more nutrient dense like yeah. foods, there are more foods with like fiber in them, there are fewer
1: foods that are just high, way high sugar. Yeah, a lot a lot more food is made from scratch now. I mean there's still, you know, it's obviously not perfect. It's not as good as other countries. There's still huge inequalities. Like it's not perfect. Mm. But I, I do think that it's worth noting sort of these kinds of improvements. And I also think that it's worth noting like what improves kids' health. Mm. and it's it's like laws and fucking money. Mm-hmm. Like one of the main things that went along with this act was way more money for school. Yeah, I think it's like three dollars and thirty eight cents per meal, and it used to be like a dollar and thirty cents per meal. So it's like, yeah. When you give schools more money to feed kids, they feed kids better.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: You know, there's all the hidden stuff with Brian Wansink's work. But then the more visible stuff is like this is something he was not interested in at all. He goes out of his way throughout both of his books to be like, oh, we shouldn't take chocolate milk away from kids because then they'll avoid school lunches altogether. Like, we don't want to change anything. That's too paternalistic. And it's like, no, Brian, we should take the chocolate milk away. (laughs) Like, I feel fine about there not being chocolate milk in schools, dude. Also, we...
0: We live in a world of forced choices, right? It's happening all around us all the time. That is part of the central conceit of his work. It seems really weird to say we're going to stop short of forcing choices, even though all of his research is forcing choices.
1: Exactly. The implication, the obvious implication of his work is that we should force choices, right? That these are designed environments. There's no such thing as a non-socially engineered food environment. Like we are surrounded by social engineering at all times. So we might as well engineer good environments, especially for kids. But it's like, as soon as it came to any actual mandatory thing of, like, forcing kids to not have those choices, he would, like, completely freak out and be like, no, 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 the corporations have to be our partners. Like, it's very clear what his actual project was the entire time.
0: Ultimately, these are incredibly complex issues. And to focus just on these sort of, like, individual choice slash life hack stuff feels, like, very short-sighted to me
1: so uh in conclusion don't life hack Mm. write to your senator and uh make something from the 1936 joy of cooking tonight
0: also if there are any researchers or science reporters listening uh, put elmo stickers on the good research